Welcome to the Hanu Health Podcast, where our mission is to help you to breathe better and stress less. On this show, we discuss a variety of topics and provide practical suggestions for improving health and well-being. However, none of the education, tips, and tricks provided should be taken as medical advice. Your medical doctor is your best bet if you have medical questions. Also, on this podcast, we interview numerous guests from diverse backgrounds, interests, and may carry some unique ideas. Hanu Health as a company does not endorse all statements provided by guests or condone all suggestions or protocols discussed. We just like hearing about cool people doing rad and new things. So sit back, relax, breathe, and enjoy the show. Marco, it's good to see you, man. Welcome to the Hanu Health Podcast. How are you today? Thank you, Jay. I'm good. I'm good. Thanks. How are you? I'm doing well, man. It's the uh, the sun's coming up. It's a brisk day here in South Carolina, which, you know, for most people, when I discuss brisk or like a cold weather, you know, for us, like cold is like in the 40s and people just laugh at me, especially like they're from up north or they're you know, in Canada. They're like, yeah, that's that's kind of a joke. Like 40 would be a nice spring day for us. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Where are you? Uh, where are you in the world right now, man? You're a world traveler. Yeah, right now I'm in the south of France. So, yeah, it's not too bad for being a winter in Europe. Still uh, also pretty mild and sunny. Nice, nice. That's awesome, man. Yeah, you know, it's you're a fun person. I always tell you this, but you're a fun person to follow like on social media and Instagram because I always see like where you're running or kind of like what city you're visiting. And so uh, it's it's always fun to keep keep up with you. Like you run a fair amount. Like I feel like you're either on your bike or you run a fair amount. Like how many miles are you putting in like a week? Or I guess kilometers for you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um I I love running. I mean, I'm not any good, but I'm trying to run, train for um, a 100K race. So that would be, I don't know, maybe 60 something miles. Yeah, um, yeah. So weekly, weekly, I run maybe between 60 and 70 miles, something like that, plus a bit of cycling. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah oh, building man, up. Incredible. Let's see. Yeah, no, that's that's incredible. Yeah, it looks like you're putting in some time. I see like your Strava uh, maps, and I'm like, oh man, he's putting in some he's putting in some work, uh, which is which is good. I mean, you know, you you own a company that's really utilizing heart rate variability for sports recovery and performance, so it only makes sense that it's passion for you and it's really a vast interest for you to train and to probably use your app to inform your level of training. Exactly, man. You have to walk the talk. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. It's one of those things. Well, you know, it's funny to me too, that you mentioned that because I get so many messages like every once in a while, like on social media, like I try not to, but every once in a while, like I'll just throw up some of my like overnight aura stats or whatever it may be. And you know, my heart rate variability is on there. And I think just genetically, like I have a really high heart rate variability compared to other people. And people are always like asking me like, what are you doing? Like, what's kind of the, the secret sauce to it? And I'm like, there are ways ways to kind of like inform and to train this. But you also have to remember that's a lot of variables here. And so it's funny because everybody thinks like I'm just doing this big walk the talk, you know, type thing. Um, and it's it's like I, I am in one sense, I'm doing all the training that I recommend to people, but also too like I have some uh, uh, natural gifts that have been given to me in regards to biometrics. And uh, I'm sure you probably get questions about that all the time with people writing in of like, oh man, am I going to die? Because, you know, my you know RMSSD heart rate variability variable is like under, you know, 20 milliseconds or something. So is that something you get all the time or is that just me? 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, it makes a lot of sense. And people, you know, just naturally tend to compare. And uh, as yep. you said, HRV is something that maybe is not that useful that way because yep. there is a lot of it that is genetic variability and we cannot um, always influence, but still yeah. can be extremely valuable just as a way to track stress and keep things in balance for ourselves. Right. No, absolutely. Well, before I put the card above the horse here, like I want to introduce you or have you introduced yourself. So, you know, I've known you for a while now. You're working with Hanu right now on our on our huge goal and projects that we're coming out with here soon. I mean, you've been an invaluable resource in regards to information and data science. But the reason I reached out to you initially is because like you have this large acumen uh, in both research and in data science and you've created, you know, a company all about heart rate variability, HRV for training. And so for me, like I knew like you were going to be my go-to guy. I had to get you on board and working with us in some capacity. So Marco, if you wouldn't mind telling uh, the audience a little bit about your background and then also like what got you interested in like biometrics and in more particular uh, biometric heart rate variability? Yeah, sure. So um, I have a background in uh, computer science and engineering. Uh, so I got my master's and, uh, and bachelor's in computer science engineering about uh, maybe 12 years ago, something like that. Um, and at that time, you know, we didn't have wearables and we barely had actually smartphones. We had maybe the first, very first iPhones and Android phones. Um, and during those days, um, I had the opportunity to do some research during my master's with a um, company that would develop some of these early prototypes that would measure cardiac activity or activity of your muscles, CMG or brain activity, all sorts of things, um, basically for research studies or for other partners. So I got interested into this thanks to this opportunity and I started looking at you know how I could apply my knowledge and more technical skills into something that was uh, to me. A lot more fascinating, which is you know monitoring the body and whatever is happening in the body in response to what we do, as opposed to you know other things computer scientists can do um, related to you know what we study. Um, so I started working with these sensors and um, doing some studies in the context of physical activity in particular. So how you know heart activity or energy expenditure or fitness would change in response to different activities. That I did a PhD in um, basically on this topic, data science and machine learning applied to wearables data in the context of um, cardiorespiratory fitness estimation or physical activity and energy expenditure and all of that. And at the same time, um, I started getting interested more into how I could build tools that would not mean you know, just doing the research or using these prototypes that we had that basically nobody had access to. But how could we build tools that um, anyone could use? And again, we had first generations of iPhones and other smartphones, and some of them were able to talk to some external sensors like polar straps and things like that. So you could start to build things that people could just download and use. And that's a bit how it started and eventually I developed this technology that you know to measure uh, heart rate variability just using the phone camera so that yeah, you don't need yeah. any sensors. That, of course, makes everything a lot simpler. And um, I got even more interested in you know, all of these aspects and the physiology that I went back to university again. And then I did another master's more in um, basically sports science and high-performance coaching. And nice. then that's a bit of 
all the background and the things that I've been doing um, in the context of technology for heart rate variability measurement or physiological measurement. Yeah, man, that's an incredible journey. I, I just find it so fascinating that we have gone from this idea of studying from a research perspective on, you know, $100,000, $200,000 machines to measure these physiological variables down to where like, you know, we thought it was awesome when we had these consumer wearables, you know, I mean, and again, they're still awesome. Aura Ring, you know, you've got Whoop, you've got Polar, you've got all these different straps that are able to extract data. However, now we're talking about like taking it directly from the phone and utilizing your phone camera. I will be the first to say, Marco, that back, you know, a few years ago when I saw that you were working on this technology, I, I looked at it and I was like, and I think even I did like a podcast a few years ago on Ben, on ben Greenfield's podcast where I was like, now nah, I'm kind of questioning the accuracy or ability to extract, you know, inner beat intervals or good heart rate variability data from a camera. And then like you came in like gangbusters with like all this research that you guys have been doing. And it's like, okay, sold. Like Marco knows what he's doing. Like he can extract, he has created this entire system of extracting extremely accurate data, like just from, you know, a smartphone camera. Like that is so incredible because the amount of reach now that this has for people, like it, you go from like being able to reach a lot more people moving from, you know, like a high grade ECG, like medical medical grade ECG to like a consumer wearable. But now we're like in a whole different ball game saying like, you don't even need a wearable. Like everybody's got a smartphone. Everybody's got an Android or an iPhone, which is, which is pretty cool. I, I can't even imagine like being you seeing that progression must've been a pretty cool thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, uh, it's been fun. Uh, and you know, some healthy skepticism is always good. And uh, I think that's yeah. what it is important in this field because you know every day you have some other company with uh, some you know different claims about what they can measure or what they can do it's really important to try to verify that that is the case um, yeah. that's why we tried always to do our validations and publish studies publish data so that it's yeah. clear uh, that you know you have that level of accuracy and this year there was also an independent yeah. study which was great because you know once you've developed a tool and taken care of developing uh, you know, the right technology and validating it and releasing it to thousands and thousands of people. At a certain point, these people will use it and other people will also try to validate it and see if it was true <laughs> that it's yeah, actually measuring yeah. what they say that it's measuring. So yeah. it's great to see that independently this was verified. So uh, for spot check measurements, I think it's a very good way to do this kind of assessment so that you can measure baseline resting physiology. Of course, we cannot use this for everything. Sometimes mm -hmm. you want to have um, longer measurements or continuous measurements, and then you might need to wear a sensor. But right. uh, depending on the application of interest, it's uh, certainly a great way today to lower the barrier because everybody has a phone and the cost is much uh, lower than any other sensor, and that makes it mm -hmm. a bit easier. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I'd love to get into this concept of spot checking because a lot of people, uh, people may be familiar with what that term means or not, maybe not so familiar. So I want to unpack that one here in, in just a second. But I think we'd be remiss not to at least, especially if this is somebody's first time coming in and listening to a podcast about heart rate variability, which my guess is probably not going to be a lot of people within you know the context of the audience. Like we don't need to dig like ultra deep here. Like we've done a lot of podcasts and there's great information on your website, on Hanu's 
website about what heart rate variability is um, in, in a more in-depth perspective. However, again, I think because we're going to be talking about heart rate variability as a metric here, it would be a good idea for us to at least give a broad overview or definition of what heart rate variability is. So there's your softball, uh, Marco. What is heart rate variability? <laughs> and then why, why, what is it telling us, especially like in relation to sports performance and recovery? Yeah, yeah. So heart variability is a measure of physiological stress. I think that's the way we should look at it in, almost independently of the application of interest. Um, this is why, uh, well, because the, um, let's say that the, the way the heart rate uh, is modulated is mostly driven by first, it's intrinsic firing rate, which is about 100 beats per minute. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, that is fairly constant, actually. There is not any variability at that stage. And then, as you know, when you measure your heart rate, your heart rate is not typically 100 beats per minute at rest. That's because of the influence of the autonomic nervous system. So the autonomic nervous system is modulating heart rate in a way that typically means that at rest, there is a large influence from one branch of the autonomic nervous system, the parasympathetic, which means that your heart rate is much lower. And this influence reduces heart rate and increases variability because basically parasympathetic activity uh, is modulating heart rhythm with breathing rate as well. So everything is interconnected in a way that, for example, parasympathetic activity is higher when you exhale, it's a bit lower when you inhale, that's why we create this modulation in consecutive heartbeats, which we measure with HRV and not only with heart rate, which is just an average and still informative in a way of the state mm -hmm. of the body, but less sensitive to these changes that are captured very well by HRV and that are reflective of physiological stress. So when mm -hmm. we measure these processes, we simply measure uh, well, we have a proxy to what is autonomic activity, and in particular, mm -hmm. I would say activity of the parasympathetic nervous system, so that we can understand what is um, the level of stress on the body. And this is something that we need to understand also needs to be contextualized always, right? We cannot take an HRV measurement and, well, if we take an HRV measurement, we don't know anything basically about the right. state of this person, right? We always need it to compare. And, and, let me, and let me make a quick comment there, Marco, because that is such a valuable point, right? I think that one of the biggest misconceptions that people have in uh, detecting and capturing this data is that they believe that they can kind of just use it for what it is right then and there without providing any level of, of content context for that data point. And it's like, eh, that's kind of just like useless right now. It's like, what are we actually like comparing to this, this to? And so I wanted to kind of like really emphasize that point because people really have a hard time understanding that, um, that, that this is not just some number that we can take at any time or any point in day and just look singular, like that, that number singularly. Um, so I just wanted to pause real quick to make sure that I, I fully emphasize that, but carry on. Yeah, exactly. That's so important because, you know, it's the same as we were saying before about the absolute values and comparing with others. You know, you take a measurement here, you might want to compare to someone, your score is lower, which means lower variability, which means higher stress. Um, does that mean anything because it's lower than your friend? And, you know, that doesn't mean anything, actually. So that's not how we use this data. Yeah. So it's important to contextualize it, which typically means to compare to your own data collected previously. 
So this kind of comparison uh, will allow you to understand when there are periods of higher or lower stress. And there, there is another point that is really important um, going back to the spot checks is that uh, due to the nature of what we are trying to measure here, autonomic activity, and the fact that the autonomic nervous system is constantly changing to respond to anything you do from light activity to eating or drinking or, you know, again, just having coffee or talking or being psychologically stressed or even just um, the day and night, the circadian rhythm and anything affects your physiology. So this is why measuring sporadically here and there is not informative either, even if you compare to your own data, because so many factors have an effect that you might not be able to actually understand if there is something that is, let's say, a significant change, something important to understand uh, so that you can act on that information, or if it is just the normal variability that is happening because of a series of other stressors, transitory or not. And that's why these spot checks need to be part of what we call, for example, the morning routine, Mm -hmm. where you measure, you know, first thing in the morning, before you are impacted by all these other stressors. And Mm -hmm. that's something that is repeatable every day and allows you to get this baseline assessment of your physiological stress and then to compare to that and to understand when there is higher or lower stress and to make changes while that is not really the case um, outside of this specific context um, if we want to assess baseline physiological stress. Yeah. I know that you have uh, really focused, you know, throughout your work on this idea of doing the spot check first thing in the morning, kind of as a part of the morning routine. I I saw a really interesting study that you posted. So I kind of know your answer to this, but people may not realize, you know, your answer to this. So I'm going to ask you anyway, you know, a lot of people have these wearables that are measuring or so-called measuring heart rate variability overnight. Now, some are doing it continuous, some are doing it at random time, some kind of are doing their proprietary readings or wherever it may be. Uh, is there uh, any reason why somebody should be doing a morning check over a continuous night check or is a continuous night check better? Or what's your, t- what's your take on that? What does the research have to say about continuous overnight HRV compared to morning HRV? Yeah. So I think that first thing, it's great that we have so many different ways now to capture this data, right? Just a few years back, uh, we had almost nothing that you could use that right. was not, um, you know, cumbersome or difficult to use or expensive or things like that. Now we have just phones that we can use for spot checks. We have wearables that we can wear and they measure as we sleep. They are optical, so, you know, rings or wristbands or anything like that. It's extremely comfortable to use. Uh, you don't have to, you know, put a chap strap on or gel electrodes and things like that, like ECGs. So that allows us to collect much better data. And even though optical measurements tend to be um, a bit noisy when there is movement, like we know that during exercise, if we use a watch, for example, for heart rate, we notice often it doesn't work very well and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, On the other hand, at rest, when there is minimal movement um, or during the night, these devices can work very well. So they can certainly provide high quality HRV data and that has been uh, shown in different papers that have validated some of these devices, like the ordering. You can see mm-hmm. that the data is accurate. So that's a great starting point. Um, another important point there is that the um, devices that measure during the night 
unfortunately, they don't always do it in the same way. And yeah. some ways are better than others. So that's a bit of a problem sometimes, in particular, some devices like um, the Apple Watch, mm-hmm. which can measure HRV accurately, um, has some issues when measuring HRV automatically because it yeah. does not do it continuously. It just gives does it do you like five-minute like increments? Yeah, it does it for a few minutes, but then uh, it would give you a point uh, maybe at 1 a.m. and one at 3 a.m. and one at oh, 5 a.m., okay. just a couple of data points, right? Sure, sure. Let's say three, four data points per night. And that's unfortunately is uh, a bit problematic because these data points you know, can be a bit noisy, can be impacted by the circadian rhythm, by different sleep stages in which you might be at that hour because every night you will be in a different sleep stage as those have you know, a different, um, yeah, they're not the same at every hour, every night, right. right? It's just depending right. on the cycle of sleep. So those are all issues that make the data less reliable during the night if you have just a few sporadic data points. Sure. If you have the whole night, then it's totally fine because you can average out these issues basically just by using the average of the night as it is reported by other tools. Um, so this can be used provided that they provide you with all the data or an average yeah. of this night. And then uh, in the context of using this or the morning measurement, I think uh, both of them are valid. There is actually this nice paper from just last week showing that across a range of values and people, the measurements in the morning and the measurements during the night were basically equivalent. There was no difference in these two methods. So and when they say equivalent, Marco, was this that the all light, let's say, use RMS SD value was comparable um, to the overnight continuous uh, RMS SD value but that was captured? And and then one thing I was going to ask you about uh, was it also was heart rate the same? Because I would just imagine that when people are asleep, that heart rate would be lower, and therefore that would translate to more variability because we know there's a direct linear correlation there. Um, so did they find that it was basically the 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 same in terms of averages or? What did that look like in terms of data? Yeah, so basically there are differences, but these are, um, let's say, become irrelevant when you measure longitudinally or even across people because these um, differences in absolute values do not translate into relative differences over time. For example, if I measure with uh, the aura ring in the night and then I measure in the morning with HRV for training with the camera, the absolute values will differ a bit. In my case, yeah. actually, my night heart rate is a bit higher than my morning heart rate, mm. interestingly. And Interesting, then, yeah. Uh, yeah, and then despite this, my night HRV is also higher than my morning HRV. Um, so some inconsistencies there with uh, what we normally expect, right? Because yeah. still autonomic activity when you're awake is different from when you're sleeping. And mm-hmm. when, you know, depending also on the distribution of sleep stages during REM sleep, your HRV is going to be a bit higher. During deep sleep, it's going to be a bit o- lower. So mm-hmm. these things cause some differences in absolute values. But then if I look at my data over weeks, then I see the same trends in uh, the morning measurements and in the night data. So I think that's what is important eventually because that's how the data is used. And the small differences in absolute values simply remind us that we shouldn't really bother too much about those and compare yeah. because even our own data can differ based on how we right. measure it, even if it is the same person. Yeah. Um, but we should you know, really I, get to the 
relative changes in relation to stress. Go ahead. I think that makes sense. I think that what ends up happening, and this is me being such a psychologist right now, <laughs> is that there is something psychologically competitive about us and we want to gamify everything, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it could potentially be that way where it's like, well, I really only want to look at the one that's higher or the one that like gives me kind of the better outcomes. Like I had this really interesting story that I'll just tell really quick, um, but I just think it's a fascinating one of a guy who emailed me one time. I ended up coaching him and working with him. He's a great guy. But he said, like, I have th- like basically thrown away my aura ring because every single time I get this data, like it is significantly lower than when I'm wearing like my whoop. Like my, my, my aura is like a 50 milliseconds RMS SD, but my whoop is telling me I'm 140. And I'm like, oh, okay, this is where we get so much mass confusion. And people like want to just say, well, yeah, I'm just going to choose the one that makes me feel best. And I'm not just saying, I mean, that's our natural human inclination, right? We're going to be self-preserving and self-protective, but there are nuances here that people need to be aware of that I think that they miss out on when they just try to like gamify and they really miss the bigger picture. And then they also don't get devices that are necessarily capturing the correct type of data and getting you kind of what you need from a scientific and research perspective. So I'm glad that you kind of clarified on this end that like, we don't need to be as concerned with the absolute values. It's really the trends that are going to matter more than anything, right? Because trends allow us for a basis of comparison. Whereas like that absolute data point that we get, you know, for one day, we, it's, it's not contextualized. Well, then what does it actually mean? Like, what does it actually represent? Which I think then brings me kind of to my next question for you, Marco. The first question would be, number one, what are the metrics, especially from a sports performance and recovery? perspective, what HRV metrics are actually important and what are maybe not so important, or at least right now we don't have evidence to say that there's a lot of value for using them from a recovery perspective or sports performance perspective. And then when we talk about this level of comparison, like what does that actually mean? Like what should we be looking for in like a brass tacks perspective? So let's start with the metrics first, talk about the ones that provide us with the most value, and then we'll transition to this topic of how do we actually compare numbers to ourselves and like what does that information tell us yeah so when it comes to the metrics um, i think there is one of those areas where maybe surprisingly we are all on the same page almost right. <laughs> so different <laughs> devices provide you with you know rmssd apps provide you with rmssd and the scientists doing the research are looking at rmssd which is, I don't know, again, um, unexpected considering that everybody is doing something different. And that's maybe one of the biggest limitations of the 50 plus years of HRV research is that there is a million different metrics and different things that people have been looking at, often inconsistently, often computed a bit differently. And then it's so difficult to generalize and understand if um, studies are saying the same thing or not, um, and things like that, especially in the older days when we didn't have the technology for continuous longitudinal measurement every day. So people would go to the lab and they would measure once, and then we would do like a three-month intervention, and then you would measure once again. And we know now with all the variability there is between consecutive days that maybe you just got you know the wrong data point that day because you don't really have an assessment of that person's physiology in that period is just that day. And we know mm-hmm. we should measure at least a week or something like that to get an idea of what's really the baseline physiology in that moment. So 
a lot of inconsistencies there. But recently, I've seen a lot of the tools, uh, the ones you mentioned also, or all of them report RMSSD. Yeah. Um, our apps report RMSSD among other metrics. So I think mm-hmm. that's, um, yeah, that's great because it's also a simple metric. It has right. a clear association with what we care about, which is parasympathetic activity, which is anyway what HRV Trust is about. Um, so it captures mathematically these uh, high-frequency changes, similarly to other features uh, you're familiar with, like the mm-hmm. high-frequency power. Um, it's yep. very similar to RMSSD when it comes to what we are capturing. It's maybe a bit less affected by breathing rate. So depending mm-hmm. on our application of interest, you know, if we do the things you do, um, your work also with biofeedback and the breathing and all of that, you might right. want to go deeper into these aspects of the different frequencies and all of that. But yes. for the resting measurements and things like that, both in the morning and in the night, where normally we do that with um, you know self-paced breathing, so just mm-hmm. free breathing at whatever pace uh, you feel comfortable with without taking mm-hmm. deep breaths because we want to we don't want to alter parasympathetic activity. We just want to assess right. it. So and I've that seen that case, number uh, generally, and, and correct me if you've seen different research on this. I say, I've seen that number really as low as eight breaths per minute. They say kind of like if you approach 10 breaths per minute, then you might start to significantly influence RMSSD, but really anything below eight, then you're getting into more of a resonant range. Um, is that kind of what you've seen and agree with as well? So like it's, you know, most people at their natural breath rate aren't going to be breathing at eight breaths per minute, even if people think they are like you you just aren't there's no research to kind of indicate that uh but really like it's hard for me because it's it's i get the um hawthorne effect when i put on a device right so the hawthorne effect is like this idea that when you're being monitored by you know a scientist or by a wearable you change your behavior and i've just noticed that i automatically move my breathing down to a lower respiratory rate maybe this is the gamification going on i'm trying to like you know increase my heart rate variability because i do so much biofeedback it's just such a natural inclination but do you think it's better marco to like like maybe even follow a pacer that keeps you above like 10 breaths per minute or do you think you should just try to naturally breathe at a quote-unquote normal rate so i think that for this uh, spot checks it is fine if it is a bit lower it will certainly most certainly be lower as you say than what we normally uh, what is normally our breathing rate in, in daily life, which is definitely more than 10. And many of yeah. these apps that guide you will be around eight, maybe even seven and a half. We don't have the guidance. We dropped it because we felt um, that was a bit better. The research yeah. says it's the same. And feedback from users, uh, you know, they always said, you know, I feel a bit like I'm breathing um, mechanically almost, you know, like a robot and things like that, they would email right. us saying, okay, I, this doesn't feel natural. And yeah. so I think from a user um, usability point of view, it's better to just do it the way you feel comfortable with. And it's a bit lower for sure when you do the test. I noticed that also with myself, but I think it's okay as mm-hmm. long as you're not really taking consciously very deep breaths. In that case, you will alter the measurement and that's not effective if we want to assess baseline physiological stress but otherwise a bit lower is fine it will have uh, basically no impact in uh, in what we are trying to assess and also again the consistency consistency aspect is really the important one so if every day you breathe that way then it's totally fine because we always compare with um, respect to your own data so i think with uh, with rmssd yeah, yeah. that's uh, that's pretty stable 
Yeah, that, that that makes a lot of sense. You know, I I have, you know, in the world of biofeedback, it's funny because when I first meet somebody for training, I'll actually have them pace breathing at what is considered a lower rate uh, than, you know, the normal breathing rate. So in general, most people are breathing around 14 to 16 breaths per minute, unless they're, you know, a little bit more physically active and physically trained, then we'll see like 12 to 14 breaths. But a lot of times I'll put them on a pacer of 10 breaths per minute and I'll just ask them, I'll ask them afterwards. I'm like, so how, how was that? How did that feel for you? Did that feel too fast, too slow? And almost inevitably, every person will say that felt way too fast. And it's always a great kind of teaching point because I'm like, pacing breathing is different. Like it's really different when you engage in it. Um, but that's technically a lot lower than what most people are breathing at on right. a normal daily basis. And so I think like what you uh, pointed at here is the idea of whatever you do, just keep it consistent. And let's try not to drop it substantially. Like we don't need to be breathing at our, like a resonant six breaths per minute rate to take these spot checks, you know, just do it at what's considered natural. But but, you know, everybody's going to have, or at least most people, especially if they're high performers, they're going to experience like what you experience and what I experience that level of Hawthorne effect, which is like when I'm monitored or when I'm being, you know, uh, watched by this, you know, this device or whatever it may be, I'm going to just naturally slow my breathing down. It just, it happens. But, you know, as long as that's consistent, then it's, then it's okay. So Marco, we talk about this idea. Okay. So RMSSD is kind of like the go-to. We talk about this morning check. Should this morning check be like first thing in the morning, like literally you roll out of bed or you stay in bed and you have your phone kind of with you and you just check while you're in a supine position. Should it be seated? Can you do it standing or does it just need to be consistent? Um, and then it's like, uh, that's one question. And then part of it too is like, I mean, should, could you do anything like uh, after? No, like, no, better way to put it is a lot of people will ask me like, can I go like drink a cup of coffee and then do it? Or is that like a no go? What's your per perspective and take on that? Like, should it just be done like first thing in the morning as soon as you like maybe not even roll out of bed? Yeah. Yeah. Ideally I would say so. So um, you wake up and then you take your measurement. I think there is of course some freedom in terms of um, many of the aspects you mentioned, body position, for example, um, or if you need to go to the bathroom, then it's preferable actually to do that before and then mm -hmm. to measure. Um, mm -hmm. So that's something that that's, is uh, yeah, typically advised. Yeah. And then when you come back, of course, maybe wait 30 seconds again, just um, relax and then take your measurement. For people mm -hmm. that have, you know, maybe small children or animals or anything that would make it impossible to take a morning measurement, I think sometimes a slightly different routine, going in another room uh, that is maybe quiet, sitting there and taking your measurements, totally fine. Yeah. Things to avoid are more like, as you mentioned, the coffee or anything that is, you know, uh, going to trigger a different response that is transitory, right? The effect of coffee will not be 70 hours, but still right. it's going to impact you for a couple of minutes, uh, half an hour, an hour. So that is going to be problematic if you measure right after. Try mm -hmm. to do your measurement you know, before breakfast, before, um, yeah, before food or any fluid intake, and then before exercise. So sure. there is some room there which you can find what's the best routine for you. For most people, the easiest typically as you wake up, grab the phone, take the measurement, and that's it. 
Yeah. Well, the great thing is, like, especially with your device, I'll speak to the your device and then to the continuous devices. So with your device, uh, which is again an, an application on the on an iPhone on Android, is that like you can just stay laying in bed, grab the phone, put the app on, and then just kind of lay there and rest and kind of continue kind of the rest portion. Uh, and then next thing you know, like you've got your you got your score there, which is which is really good. Uh, you know, with the continuous or overnight readings, let's say like Aura, I use Aura because that's just kind of my favorite go-to continuous, you know, sleep wearable. I know you have, you know, d- uh, dense connections and done a lot of work with Aura and it's great. Like, I mean, it's a phenomenal device. Um, do you think that people, and this is kind of a little bit of more of a, um, I guess you could say philosophical question. I don't know. Not really. It's a science. So I, I don't think it's a philosophical question. It's just one that's an interesting question to me. Like, should people immediately, like first thing they do after they've done their reading, should they look at it and kind of determine like where they are? Should they open up their Aura Ring app and like look at that score? Because I've heard different responses to that, um, especially in regards to this whole idea of like a self-fulfilling prophecy, like for the rest of the day. I'm just curious as to what what your take is on that yeah i think um there is no right answer what i mean is that people are different and uh some people you know we look at the data and this happens especially after a while right if you understand yeah. the technology and if you understand what it's measuring and the fact that there can be changes in stress that can be um, important for example you know what happens before you get sick or during sickness right. or at the same time there can be changes that are irrelevant and acute suppression in hrv because maybe you didn't digest well yesterday's dinner and things like that sure, sure. so we need to be able to um, look at the data and also assess how we feel subjectively yeah. without that subjective feeling being yeah. completely dependent on the data we just looked at. <laughs> so I think that's yes. really important. <laughs> uh, what we do in the app typically is that people measure. After the measurement, we have this questionnaire where they answer also subjective things, mm-hmm. which I think mm-hmm. it's it's really um, uh, important at times because mm-hmm. it just you just pause a second and you think about how you're feeling and, you yeah. know, that is um, often helpful just as a morning self-assessment before sure. you see any numbers. So only after the questionnaire, you will see your actual HRV. So right. that process maybe combines a bit of the two so that yeah. you have the art data, but also yeah. the subjective assessment. Um, and yeah, for anyone that maybe has not measured or does not have a wearable and would like to start or to look into this kind of things, I think the best thing to do is to just observe for several weeks or even longer without doing you know too much based on the data so sure. do not change anything and see maybe on a low day how did it go mm-hmm. maybe you were totally fine and that is not a problem and only when you have a couple of low days so a strongest yeah. chronic stressor that is impacting you then maybe you're starting to feel a bit down and then later on you will learn how to use the data. So you will see that, okay, today I have a suppression, but I feel good. So we don't care about this. We just go on with our day. We just maybe pay a little more attention. And then if we have two or three days with the suppressions, then we know that something bigger is there and then we take action. Um, So I think, you know, we can learn from the data this way, but we should always try not to depend too much or entirely on the data 
uh, that should not be yeah. the point, but it's unfortunately how it ends up being uh, in many cases. Yeah, you know, I, I I beat this drum to death, but I don't mind beating it to death. But I, I always kind of come back with this idea of marrying the subjective with the objective. Um, it should not be that we just carry on with one over the other or just one or just the other. Uh, the problem with that, especially in the health optimization and the so-called you know biohacking community, is that a lot of these individuals move almost solely to the objective data. And I'm like, this is great information. This is invaluable information. However, if you're utilizing it only to kind of like fulfill or have, live out the self-fulfilling prophecy of whatever your data is, then like, is it working for you or is there, it potentially working against you? And I would say, I would argue the latter, that it's working potentially against you because it provides us then almost like with this excuse, especially from a training perspective. It's like, oh, well, well, you know, yesterday, you know, my basic average is, you know, 50 milliseconds RMSSD. Ah, today it was a 35. That's my excuse to sit on the couch and not do anything. I feel great, but you know, I can, you know, sit on the couch and not do anything. And it's like, okay, like, is this really how the data is intended to be used? Or are we just kind of making up our own rules here? Which kind of then brings me to my next question to you, um, which actually, before I transition to that question, which is really like, how do we actually like boots on the ground, like use this data? One question that is always asked of me uh, in, in just in terms of capture of data and timing is this idea of like, how long like do we actually need to collect data for? Does it need to be for two minutes? Does it need to be for five minutes? Like, can we get away with a minute or even 30 seconds? From your research, both in the development of your app and then just from the scientific literature, like what's what's your response to that? Like what what is like a good data capture? Where are our minimums? Maybe what even is our maximum? Yeah, for um for spot check measurements in the morning. And for this feature that we talked about at MSSD, which is what we provide and most tools provide, um, a minute is good enough. So that's great because it's really just a minute. Mm -hmm. And there, is, there have been different studies that we also replicated ourselves looking at uh, something going as short as 10 seconds to the typical five minutes that we are used to use um, sure. in clinical settings. And uh, you can see that if you use very short measurements, 10 seconds or 30 seconds, there is a bit higher variability, which means um, not the absolute values itself, but it means that if you measure a couple of times in a row, the values will be a bit more all over the place. So sure. a bit higher and a bit lower. And that's because it's just very short that sometimes mm -hmm. you don't even have a full breathing cycle in 10 seconds, mm -hmm. or you have you know one and a half and you have maybe two inhales and one exhale. So these factors play a bigger role in getting new data that is a bit less consistent when you go very short. Well, if right. you get up to a minute, normally you have uh, for sure a couple of breathing cycles and you have a better understanding of what's the variability at that point for this yeah. type of feature. So sure. first thing in the morning, a minute is good enough. You can do two minutes. I wouldn't even go longer, especially if you use um, you know, the phone camera and things like that or right. any PPG sensor, optical sensors where movement basically becomes a problem. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you could stay there longer, but then it's unlikely that you do not move at all. So you might yeah. cause more issues than sure. you would if you were just taking a cleaner, shorter measurement. Sure. So that's what we recommend normally, a minute or two, depending yeah. on what you prefer. Yeah. But that's, yeah. uh, that's pretty good. 
Right. No, that's that's great. You know, one of the things that um, when I was in training, especially when I was getting board certification, heart rate variability, biofeedback, there was this notion that came from more archaic research that you really needed to take this five minute reading. Um, and so for me, I was like, okay, like that's what I taught. Like that's what I provided. However, in today's day and age in our society is five minutes is really hard for a lot of people, um, especially if they're just kind of sitting there and quote unquote doing nothing. Like it just tends to be a little bit more difficult. Um, we can get people sometimes to train and do breath work or biofeedback for five minutes maybe, um, but to sit there and do a static type read can be a little bit difficult for people. So when I've seen you know more of the newer research and some of the research that you've been doing that has indicated that, hey, we can do a 60 second data capture and it really doesn't lose its fidelity over these like two minute, five minute readings, like that's pretty big in my opinion. Like that's awesome. Um, the reason it's so awesome is because most people are going to be willing to carve out 60 seconds of their day as compared to five minutes. And yeah, five minutes doesn't sound like a long time. Two minutes maybe doesn't sound like a long time, but really if we can get away with it in a matter of 60 seconds, then I think that's going to be a bulk majority of people's preference is to like limit the amount of time that they're having to maybe not even necessarily engage with technology because we got people who are, you know, using Instagram and Snapchat for six hours a day, but at least not have to just sit there and feel like they're not accomplishing anything, which is definitely not what's happening. They're accomplishing a lot, but sometimes they don't feel like it. So I like this idea of like a 60 second data capture. Do you think like, is there any research that's indicative that we might could even potentially go lower than that, like 30 seconds and not lose fidelity? Or are we really starting to lose some fidelity when we get down to like 30 seconds? Yeah, I think it depends a bit. So when we talk about these short measurements, well, uh, for sure, we need to look at very specific features like RMSSD. So for other things, we just cannot do it even now, right? So if we look at right. low frequency power and things like that, that might be more relevant in biofeedback. We yeah. just cannot do it in that little time because the more time, the higher the resolution, and then yes. the data will be more representative of what we are looking at. But uh, if we look at uh, RMSSD, we can go lower, maybe if we are looking at something a bit different. So if, for mm -hmm. a spot check in the morning, I would still go for a minute. Otherwise, we introduce a bit too much variability and noise. But if we are measuring maybe continuously and trying to assess stress um, during the day or something a bit different, then we could try to go also a bit lower um, and see how that evolves in response uh, to the different things that we do sure. um, and see if that captures these changes better, especially if they are dynamic. Um, there is some interesting research also post-exercise to look mm -hmm. at both changes in heart rate and in HRV after exercise of different intensities, where you can see even that for exercise of low intensity, easy running, easy cycling, you have actually... Um, despite having you know heart rate that is obviously increased with respect to pre-exercise, you have that HRV also increases. So you have a sort of a positive acute modulation that normally you would not expect. Yeah, huh. and I that's something that. that so lo lower intensity. Let's say like like maybe zone two type training. So lower heart rate training. Uh, we see kind of transient or acute post-exercise effects of of increases in HRV. Exactly. While measuring, wow. you know, uh, resting at, uh, again, self-paced breathing, and we can see some uh, sort of overshooting there where it can go maybe 120% of 
free exercise, so a bit higher. Really? Um, and that's quite interesting because if you do a slightly higher intensity exercise, you know, zone three or higher, then you see what you expect. So an acute suppression and the yes. harder the exercise, the harder, the longer the suppression, it will last. So that again is indicative of the recovery and all yes. of that process. Uh, but uh, yeah, the most fascinating bit for me is really the how the low intensity exercise does not trigger that suppression, but sometimes even goes the other way around. That's um, really that's fascinating. I yeah. have not seen that research, which is so cool to me because I'm a huge advocate of zone two training um, because of the cardiorespiratory effects, because yeah. of the mitochondrial enhancement. And I've seen that the more that I engage in kind of good, consistent zone two training, that I have better HRV static reads. I have increased um, uh, metrics on, on this end, but I didn't know that like you could do it just right after just post exercise and you could potentially see those significant like effects and i'm assuming these are you know vagal effects cardiorespiratory effects that we're seeing uh just super fascinating but then you know if you move up into the zone two zone you know sorry zone three zone four and then especially you know zone five then you're not going to see that you're going to see what you would expect which would be significant drops in hrv which people should also note is not a bad thing like it's it's expected um that's just that's absolutely fascinating to me it's really cool stuff yeah yeah uh, i think that's uh, that's really interesting it's some research that was done uh, by steven seiler i think already almost 15 years ago and then yeah. was not really receiving much follow-up so we are actually working together now in potentially starting a larger study you know things again the technology has changed so there are right. so many people using these tools so mm -hmm. some sort of user-generated data set in which people can contribute and can yeah. test these, and then we can maybe better understand these effects. So Absolutely. hopefully we will know more soon. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that, that's phenomenal. All right. One of the things that I wanted to talk about is again, kind of like, what is this value that we're comparing to? Because we talked about how like when we take HRV measurements, there shouldn't be a normative comparison um, to provide us with much valuable information. Like me comparing to you, comparing to, you know, whoever else, like that data isn't comparable. Um, it shouldn't be. We have no evidence to say that there's value there, but at a level of self-comparison, there is value. So what I think a lot of users or a lot of people who are listening to this podcast would be really interested in is like the actual like pointed boots on the ground. Like how do we compare? Like, are we looking at like from day to day, like a 20% decrease gives us information, a 40% decrease or on the opposite end, an increase? Like what do these numbers mean? And like, how do we utilize them practically? Uh, because again, this is a question I'm getting all the time. It's like, okay, so if my baseline is 50 and I wake up in the morning and it's a 30 or a 20, like, what do I do about that? And I know we need to check in subjectively. We've already stated, you know, that, but maybe let's talk a little bit about that. Like, how do we marry those things? And then like, what do we do with it? Because I think that's where a lot of people get confused on like how you close the loop, right? They get their data, their information, but they're like, uh, okay, like, what does this actually mean for me today or tomorrow or whatever it may be? So have at it, Marco. <laughs> That's such a good point because, you know, we talked about getting accurate data and also getting this data at the right time. And the third step is always, how do we use this data, right? How do we analyze mm -hmm. it so that we have something actionable? And I think there uh, is where maybe most tools for short a bit because they provide you with this data. Yeah. But then it's difficult to understand even, as you said, 
today's score is a bit lower. What does that mean? Is it significantly lower than my normal? Is that within my normal? What is my normal even? It's not something that is normally provided. Yes. So that's uh, what we try to do uh, you know, with HRV for training and our mm-hmm. tools so that we use the past two months of data. Mm-hmm. And we pick this time frame and, you know, it doesn't have to be two months. It could be in some studies, it's 30 days. You could do 45 days. I think two months is a good time frame because there are seasonal changes with resting physiology. So we don't want right. to get stuck with something that was, you know, six months ago and it was summer and, you know, physiology is different also because of that. So your normal should not be uh, yeah, based on that that is too old. At the same time, you don't want to just use the past few weeks because uh, let's say that you're sick and your data changes dramatically. That is not your normal. That is a high suppression from your normal, even if you've been sick for two weeks. So we need something in between there. And Mm -hmm. that's why we use two months. Do you think it takes about two months to capture a pretty accurate baseline? Um, Or do you think that people can use your device or any other type of device, start measuring and then make like after a few days, some, you know, reasonable understandings of baseline? Do you think that that two months is really needed? Or like, let's say somebody's just starting and they haven't really captured two months worth of data. Like, can we do much, if anything, with that? I think you can get a bit of an idea of what's your baseline mm-hmm. within the first week. If you are in a normal period, let's say, with stress is uh, yeah, sort of your average, because sure. you will not be able to see large uh, changes and, and long-term changes in a short time, of course. So that's mm-hmm. um, a starting point to get an idea of what's okay. Your service around this value. But then if you want to act on that, I think we need to talk a bit about um, waiting a little longer uh, and a couple of weeks so that you'll have an idea. And of course, apps will try to provide your advice a bit quicker. Uh, you know, they need to keep you uh, using the tool. We also do that after the first four or five days, your historical data. So just those few days will be used to compare your daily score. So if your daily score is highly suppressed with respect to those few days, um, it will be flagged as something that is significantly different and you know you might want to take it easy that day at the same time uh, these systems will get better as you collect more data right. so again yeah. just give it some time and then after a few weeks the system will know much better what is your normal and when you deviate from that and then yeah. we go back to so uh, y- using it yeah so you you mentioned Marco about this idea. You said you know it might get fl- like data might get flagged, and it may be indicative that you need to you know take it easy that day. Um, where's kind of like the threshold for people, or how do we determine the threshold between like what indicates like take it easy versus like which I would say is like you know cautionary. Um, and maybe you adjust the level of intensity or duration of your workout compared to where it's like your data might even be indicative of like, oh man, like this is a red flag. Like you're prone to injury right now because HRV is significantly low. Like your nervous system really has not haven't had time to repair. Like how are those numbers like adjusted for, or like how do we even determine those numbers or is it different really for everybody? So there, I would say a couple of things. First thing is that um, the research has moved a bit from the acute score. So today your data says this, so we do that, mm-hmm. to the baseline change. So your seven days moving average, so the last, let's say the recent trend 
with respect to your normal. So and your normal is again two months. So if right. you know your baseline is below your normal, that can only happen if you had several of these acute changes that were you know acute drops and very low scores. Because by definition, the baseline is seven days. So you cannot just drop it too low with just one acute suppression. You just need a couple of mm-hmm. bad days, so to speak, for that stronger stress signal to be detected. And that's how the studies are doing it now, um, mm-hmm. which I think makes sense uh, because at that point you don't act on any, uh, all of these um, suppressions, which might be associated, as we said before, to just something transitory. And, you know, HRV is very sensitive to stress, not very specific. Yeah. So it could be anything. And then um, yes. if we look at these longer term changes in the baseline, then it's something that for sure is a bit more chronic. And that's something that you uh, typically can act upon um, without being overly reactive based on just the daily score, because it's going to take a couple of days before you get there. So I think that's um, a good way to make use of the data, balancing a bit uh, the two things um, mm-hmm. in a way that is um, yeah, more effective. So one thing, Marco, that I get asked all the time, and I don't have great responses to this because I will say kind of be be the first, well, I am an expert, subject matter expert in heart rate variability. I'm really more on the end of biofeedback and stress resiliency. I love and know a lot about human performance and recovery and sports uh, resiliency, sports performance, but I say that's much more your alley than mine. One question that I do get all the time that I'm very curious to your response on this is that when people are looking at, let's say someone engages in a really high level, high intense, maybe even long duration workout. So I'm going to say, or use the example of like someone who's an ultra runner, um, someone who is, you know, a, a really long distance cyclist, maybe a triathlete, someone who's training for Ironman, or even maybe like a CrossFitter who does like a lot of high intensity Metcon. When we look at recovery, especially from a nervous system resiliency perspective and more, i.e. proxy use of HRV, are most people going to say a really big drop off? and heart rate variability kind of like the next day, like when they like wake up and take their morning writing a score? Or is there a delay effect for some people or most people? It's not like until two days later or three days later. What is the research that you guys have done in HRV for training or just kind of anywhere that you've seen? What does it say about kind of like the recovery time and what we should expect? Like, should we see that HRV be really low the next day potentially? Or should it be like a few days later? Or is it just really variable? Yeah, so I would say there is uh, a level of variability, but typically it's very acute, the suppression right after. So that's what we normally see, uh, almost linearly related to intensity, meaning the harder you go, uh, the more the suppression, typically at an acute level. But it's important here to understand that uh, during training, you actually normally should never see that. What I mean is that If you have that kind of suppression, it does not mean that you did a great workout. It means that you did not deal well with that workout. (laughs) The response is not good. Because, you know, when I look at data from uh, top triathletes, you know, that go to Kona and, you know, do the world championships and things like that, they they train hard and a lot of hours, but their HRV is basically never suppressed. It's always very boring, so to speak, within their normal range. And that's yeah. what, you know, good athletes, well-conditioned for the stimulus they're taking, uh, normally see. 
So normally, if you train well and you know you periodize your training and you have your hard sessions and your easier sessions, yes, you might see some drops here and there after the harder ones. But ideally, you don't want to see them or you want to bounce back quickly. If you do a hard workout and it takes you three or four days to get back to normal, if that's a problem, it means it was just too hard for you. So, so you're overreaching you or potentially need. overtraining at that point. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Because it's really it's really the response that we look at. It's not yes. the stimulus, it's not the input, it's the output. So there um, we want to make sure that basically things are stable and we respond well. And that's yeah. how we should try to also use the data. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah, that is that's so interesting and intriguing to me. And I hope that a lot of people allow that to digest. I'll make I'm gonna have to make a clip of what you just said and put it all over social media because I think it's such a valuable point. One of the things that I have seen um, with a lot of high performance athletes is that when they tend to see a little bit more of a chronic suppression of HRV, it does mean either they're overtraining or overreaching, or there's a combination of really hard training days that's accompanied with a lot of psychological stress. Um so if they're really just stressed about whatever it may be. It's like the interaction of like overexertion and physiological stress combined with psychological stress that then results in these longer, maybe systemic drops in heart rate variability. And that's when we're like, okay, now we've got like two competing variables here, not just one that you're just overreaching or overtraining, but it's the psychological component as well that's really impacting nervous system functioning and IE will impact your, your overall recovery. So I think that it's such a, a valuable point. And I really like hearing that from you because I think a lot of people just say, oh, well, like I expect every other day that like I do a really hard training session, like my, you know, 50 millisecond RMSSD value is going to go down to, you know, 15 or 20. And it's like, if it's doing that, then that's a signal. Like th this is what HRV is, right? It's a signal. It's an alert system for you to become more self-aware about your input and your output. And so I, um, yeah, I just think that that's a, it's a valuable point for people to take home. It's like, you know, if you see that, then you need to pump the brakes. Like you're doing something that isn't really uh, valuable for your nervous system and you're not allowing yourself time to recover. Did I get that right? Or am I like over? over yeah, exactly. Over? Exactly. The best thing you can do, uh, you know, the day after a hard session, the best thing you can see is your HRV within your normal and then keep going as planned. I love it. I love it. Awesome, man. Well, dude, it's uh, it's been a pleasure talking, Marco. Like you are a wealth of knowledge in this area. And again, this is why like we called you as a go-to because I knew that for us at Hanu, we are a science-first um, program. We are a science-first uh, tool and development. And so for us, it was like, I got to get Marco on board because he's got a high level of integrity, a lot of really great experience in this area. And I knew that too, you coming on the podcast, you'd be a wealth of knowledge in this in this area. Um, and so, you know, again, like I, I really appreciate your help on that. And, you know, one of the things that you mentioned is that you guys at HRV for training are really doing an amazing job at like helping people to close the loop with their data, not just providing information or data, which is valuable, but for most people, they need to know what to do with it. And I really appreciate that. And as you know, um, and we'll be able to tell more kind of as, as time goes by, that's what we're doing at Hanu uh, on the stress resiliency front is that we don't want to provide people just with this data. We want to tell you like, what do you do about it? And personal it to there. And so we appreciate your help here at Hanu, Marco. And dude, thanks. Thanks. Thanks for coming on, man. Thank you. Thank you, Jay. It's been great chatting and also great working together in the past months. Looking forward right. to more. 
Absolutely. Well, before we conclude today, one thing I, I forgot to do is like plug you. Um, I mean, I know we've kind of plugged, everybody knows HRV for training, but tell sure. people what are, what are the handles for HRV for training on social media? How can, how can somebody um, maybe even get in contact with you if they have questions uh, in regards to like your, your application, is social media, a good place, like plug them there. Yeah. Yeah. So for HRV for training, it's at HRV for training for myself is at Altini underscore Marco, which is last name underscore first name. Um, on Twitter mostly or Instagram, uh, and you know, feel free to reach out and uh, happy to help. Awesome, awesome, man. Again, thanks so much, Marco. Until next time, everybody, uh, we'll see you next Friday. You guys take care, uh, make sure that you're closing the loop on all your readings, and have a great rest of the day. Thanks for listening to the Hanu Health Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast would not happen without listeners and supporters like you. And the best way to support us and the show is to head on over to iTunes and provide us with a five-star review. This helps us reach others and spread the good word of breathing and stress resiliency. If we read your five-star review on air, please reach out to podcast at hanuhealth.com with your name and mailing address, and we will send you some sweet Hanu gear. Until next time, breathe better and stress less.